Hi everyone, this is like mycelium and I'm Maria Grand and today I'm really honored and excited to be speaking with Faye Victor. Faye Victor is a vocalist, composer, amazing, amazing artist. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Maria. It's awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, I think you wanted to start with talking about something really important. Um, so you just celebrated 25 years of marriage with your husband? Yes, yes, yes. Just uh, last week, Tuesday. Thank you. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, thank you. It's um, It's been quite a journey. To, um, yeah, I think as you, my husband's Dutch and we, started our marriage living in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, um, where I lived for a while. And in the early 2000s, we moved to New York. Back to, well, I moved back to New York because I'm a native New Yorker. And he came with me. Okay. Um, so I think this kind of ties into what I wanted to ask you about your, um, your musical history. And, mm -hmm. um, and of course it's, it's, intertwined with your personal history you're a native new yorker and you yeah. moved to amsterdam is that where you recorded your first record no i actually recorded my very first record um in austria and okay. yeah in vienna um a record called should we do this again which i think is out of print that was in 1995 um that for me is a strange record. I mean, it's technically my first album. Um, I don't talk about it much, um, but it's technically a strange record because I don't really feel I had any, had a lot of say in it. Um, the band, I happened to be touring with a band in Austria um, and somebody wanted to make a record and thought, well, you know, as a band, um, we could do well in terms of getting performances. Um, so there was an opportunity to make a record. So I was happy about that because I hadn't had that before. But um, outside of me picking the tunes, um, the band, I had no say in, had no say in the studio, you know, all those things. Um, so although a couple of the things on it are all right, um, it doesn't really feel like my record. I feel like my really my first record is uh, the record that I brought out on label called Timeless Records called In My Own Room. Yeah. Did you record that in Amsterdam? I did record that in Amsterdam, yes. So I'm assuming that you, of course, you started learning music in the States before that. Well, uh, learning music, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I want to clarify that a little bit. So um, I started, you know, in the African-American community uh, as a jazz vocalist, well, figuring out whether I would be a jazz vocalist. I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and that was a very oral way of learning music. Um, basically learning songs by ear, learning solos by ear, um, going to workshops and actually, um, I, had, I went to this weekly workshop where I actually sang the songs. It wasn't about, um, and even the, the, the pianist and organ player who I, I mentioned earlier when we're talking, um, his name is Jimmy Siegler. He himself didn't even learn or read music until he was, he was 60, he went back to school. He had, he had, um, he's one of those amazing treasures that I'm not sure exists anymore. He knew like thousands of songs in his head, in every key. Um, we were spoiled. Like you could say, I, I might pull out a song that I just worked on and, and um, some very obscure song. And, and, and he would not only know the song, he would actually be able to figure out the right key and play it in that key. Um, so I really grew up in uh, ingesting the music in a very oral way. And, um, and I want to add to that, like in the period of time, this was a time when actually if you're coming out of, coming out of the African-American community, I didn't want to school for this music was, 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 um, was, was a conflicting. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of great black musicians that went to Berkeley and went to other programs in this time, but a lot of the sort of the mentality was you really need to learn this music on the band side. And that's the way this music uh, came up as, a, as oral music. And that's the best way to learn it. And that was actually in the end, the route that I took. I just wanted to clarify, clarify mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And was that, that was in Brooklyn mostly? Brooklyn and Manhattan, yeah. So the late, this is like the end, what is you could say early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I, when I, I started out in the, like 89, but I was just, you know, I wasn't performing that much, just trying to figure out, you know, figure out what I wanted to do. And initially that was become a, become a jazz singer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what, um, what drove you to move to Amsterdam? Well, um, so the interesting thing about making the decision to learn on the bandstand was that if you come from New York City, that's a very hard city to try to get on a bandstand, right? Because, um, of course, that's that's the jazz mecca. It still is to a certain degree, but certainly then it was the jazz mecca of the world. And anybody who was great or thought they were great were trying to get gigs too. So um, it was difficult to try to get work. And when I decided to become really serious about the music, um, I, I, I needed a place to work. I got really lucky um, and through a friend who was a great vocalist, um, who's no longer on the scene, um, I got a gig in Japan for three months um, in a hostess bar, which is awesome. And I got to take the great Bertha Hope. I didn't even know who Bertha Hope was at the time, but she was with me for three months in that sort of really nascent period of, of my, uh, you know, my, my, you know, my connection to music is music and which, in hindsight, was kind of the most amazing gift you could get. And um, we became really good friends. We shared an apartment. We had this huge apartment. Um, we had this gig where we were working six nights a week, four sets a night. Um, and that was where I actually decided to make this music my life's work because, um, and that sort of like consist, you know, sort of consistent performing every single night. Um, and I didn't get tired of it. And we would go in, like during the week, we'd go in so I could learn more. You know, I left there learning like 50 or 60 new tunes because we went in every week and worked on the music and it was it was so great. And um, can I ask you something? How how was the process of learning the songs? Because, you know, like right now you can look at YouTube or whatever and you'll find a version. But back then, was she just showing you the songs? Did she know the lyrics? Would she sing it for you? Well, at the time, you know, I had a lot of music. I had a lot of, and, and there was, a, you know, I was listening to a lot of uh, great jazz singers. You know, that was my immersion at the time, you know, Sarah Vaughan, especially at this particular time, I would say Sarah Vaughan, um, Ella Fitzgerald, um, mainly Carmen McRae. Mm -hmm. So in listening to them, I got a lot of ideas of, of, of repertoire I wanted to do. And either she knew the songs or I had, I had song books with me. So between that, um, or she would help me transcribe. I wasn't able to transcribe at that point myself. Um, like, you know, a, a lead sheet so that we can try some things. Um, and also I came at that point, even though I was really green, I still, I, I had a repertoire of about 30 songs. So that was enough to get going. And, and while I was there, I learned about, yeah, I guess 50, 60 more. And that was a way, just kind of like listening, say, okay, this week, let's work on this. Or, you know, or this week, well, maybe sometimes it'd be, well, um, we worked on this particular tune last week, but let's just try it. Maybe let's try a different take different take on it. Instead of trying to swing, let's try it maybe as a Latin version. Let's try let's try it in a bluesy take, whatever, you know, just kind of play with the material at hand too. Mm -hmm. um, but that was really the way. That was the way I learned a lot. All of the songs was, was by ear, yeah. And you said you were learning solos too? Yeah, yeah. So, um Funnily enough, I really got attracted to instrumental jazz pretty early on, which, you know, I, I realized now that that's a little, for, my, for a lot of vocalists, that's not sort of a normal thing, at least initially. Um, maybe I should say that, but yeah, that, 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 that's, that's my experience. Um, also, as an educator, um, I constantly are telling vocalists, listen to instrumental versions of the songs you want to say. Um, but anyway, I, I present, for example, I fell in love with Thelonious Monk, like immediately, and Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis. So I would listen and learn by ear the solos. So, for example, the, the something else, this because I still tell students who this is there. There's a great version of Autumn Leaves from the Something Else album from Cannibal mm -hmm, Adderley, mm -hmm. um, which I learned like every solo. Mm -hmm. Cannibals, Miles, um, I think Bill Evans is playing piano. Mm -hmm. um, the piano solo, um, and and that just also because also that just really opened not only opened up my ear 
But not only would I learn the solos, I would also learn to improvise and contrast with the soloist. So also perform, you know, all of this by ear, all of this by ear. So for some reason, I really, initially, I just really got attracted to the idea that this was a music that gave me this freedom to explore how you want to relate to it. Um, you know, there's a structure, there's a harmonic structure, obviously, there's a song structure, there's a form, all that. But you have a lot of freedom in how you address and how you, you know, negotiate all of those components. And I just thought coming out of, you know, growing up sort of listening to great stuff like funk and 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 um and soul and RB. I as long as you know, there's always been that component of improvisational, you know, ad-libbing at the end of like, you know, there's always been that space, but I never, I never did interact with the music when I got, until I got to jazz where that was the whole point, you know, and that was very liberating for me. I hear that, you know, like um, in, in your record, in my own room, you're singing standards, but I hear the same freedom that I'm hearing, you know, way like now. They're, the way you're treating the standards is really clay-like, you know, and sometimes, um, how can I say that? It's, it's rare, you know, to, to, to have this, this level of, of just treating it as, as something that's, that's malleable. Well, I mean, you. especially now, you know, but it makes a lot of sense what you're saying because mm -hmm. it's like the same freedom just carried over into the other things you did, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that and acknowledging that. And I, I think that's, you know, that's really the, um, how can I put this? That's, to me, that's really what's amazing about jazz. And I get, if I get annoyed or get upset, is this idea when people want to sort of like, you know, uh, hold it down. It's not, it's not designed to do that. I mean, I, I get, from an intellectual, I get the reasons why one would want to hold it down because, you know, it's easier to teach. It's easier to, um, it's easier to kind of pull people in, you know, if you're trying to really advocate that more people get involved. If, if the structure is super clear all the time and people don't have to question, it, it gets easier. I, I, so I understand all of that, but that doesn't, that has nothing to do with, the, that's nothing about the music. That's just about how convenient it is for you to do certain things with it. And that's not, that's nothing to do with the actual music is about, which is expression and freedom of expression. It also, you know, um, the other thing I've been really thinking about a lot, which is coming back kind of full circle, is how important the voice has been to this music. You know, um, in other words, you know, the, the sonic relationship that horn players have um, initially in the early parts of the music come out of trying to sound vocal and and uh listening to the blues singers and it's also to the to the point now where i haven't i mean i i love to scat but i have a little bit of an issue with scatting because to me it's like this weird disconnect it's like the voice is trying to take on instrumental qualities when this music comes from the when it's the other way around um and actually i think when instrumentalists Try to sound much more vocal. And I would say the last real great component of that is Ornette Coleman. When um, when musicians really tried, I, I, the sounds were much more distinct. They sounded much more individual. And 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 also initially when people weren't going to school, when the academy wasn't involved, that was the only way to differentiate yourself mm -hmm. um, was to sound you know as individual and distinct as possible. So for all those reasons. Um, uh, I really hold those things really to heart as a jazz, you know, coming out of a jazz sensibility in terms of performance and, and how, so how to treat, you know, standards or anything else. And it makes more sense now to hear that you're coming to playing standards, to singing standards from the standpoint of oral tradition and community. Um, but can you tell me what happened when you just like you took it to another level you know you took it a step further into your own music how yeah. how did that happen for you what what is that like what is that process like well <laughs> uh yes yes a great question for you <laughs> um so one of the 
really the main reasons I'm so happy that I got to spend time in the Netherlands was this, you know, time and space. You know, we we started to talk about earlier, which I, and I'll come back to the question, but um, moving to Amsterdam had, had a lot to do about trying to work on a bandstand more consistently. And, um, and it turned out, Amsterdam turned out to be a great place, or at least a great base to start doing that within the European continent. Um, and so I got to work a lot. I got to work a lot. It wasn't always the most ideal, you know, working situations in terms of the musicians or whatever, but it doesn't matter. I feel like I consider those years like working in the trenches, you know, like you kind of um, just figuring out, just doing all the stuff, getting to be, to get better season and get a better sense of what you really want to do. Um, and there was a moment, um, now to kind of connect it to your last question, there was this moment when I realized that um, as much as I love singing jazz and I love the music and I love improvising and all of that, two things started to annoy me, scatting, this idea of like, I wanted to figure out other ways of improvising beyond scatting. I couldn't really give voice to why scatting was an issue at that time, but it was started, it started to feel like a very narrow thing, narrow way to improvise. And also because I was living in Amsterdam and checking out different music, I was starting to hear other ways that people were improvising. I didn't like it, but I started to kind of hear that there were other, other approaches that I wasn't aware of before at all. Um, and then the other thing was the lyrics of most jazz songs started to really, um, I just felt most of them were really awful. And didn't really speak to the things I wanted to say. And I was kind of, you know, I kind of thought, well, um, you know, taking, the, and at this point I was listening to people like Betty Carter and Cassandra Wilson, who were much more, um, let's just say, I would say, you know, much more clear conceptually uh, artists in terms of, it was very clear, you know, what they were, um, trying to do and how to, they were differentiating themselves. And so, um, and Betty was writing a lot. Cassandra not so much, but Betty was definitely writing a lot. And um, and also people like Abby Lincoln. Um, and so I decided to start writing more lyrics and writing um, to sort of establish compositions. Like I started writing lyrics to Kamal compositions and Say Rollins and even a Wayne Shorter composition. And, you know, just trying to basically find the music that I liked and then write lyrics that I wanted to sing about, things that I wanted to sing about to those compositions. And then it sort of morphed into gradually starting to write, Joachim and I started to write together. Initially, I would write lyrics, he would write the melodies and chords. But over the years, um, that started to gradually morph where it could be either of us. He never really wrote lyrics too much, but he definitely wrote, um, he would definitely kind of maybe just write maybe a melody line and I'd write the chords or other way the other way around. Um, so those were the really the, the, big, the two big things was just like sort of not wanting to sing these lyrics that were attached to jazz standards or typical jazz standards. And also not wanting to, to think of other ways of scatting, of scat well, other ways of improvising. So uh, as luck would have it, two things, okay, two, everything's in twos. The other two, two things that really happened, one big thing was I, I, the immersion of the blues. I got deeply immersed and really understood the blues outside of, hmm, I gotta put this, outside of the, and now I'm not coming out of the academy, so I, I don't wanna say too much from this perspective, but my feeling from the band sound anyway, was that the blues came down to a blues scale or use of the blues scale and or specific repertoire that felt blues-like or blues, bluesy that, at least to me, felt like had to be part of the repertoire, not because it was a passion or something, but just because it just had to be, you had to have something like that. Um, as singers, we were really trained, you know, you had to have a bossa, you had to have a ballad, you had to have a blues, you know, that kind of thing. You had to have some swing, medium, up, you know, like, it's like a, and that's just, so the blues, so I realized that the blues I knew um, didn't really mean anything. Um, not that they were bad, they just were just weren't related. So I so I, I had a deep immersion into the blues. Um, I worked in blues bands when I lived in in, in Europe um, for 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 a few years. Well, 
And um, and that was an amazing that that really trans that one thing transformed everything. Um, because the blues, um, just the chord progressions of the blues is related to so much music, including classical music. So it also in a certain way opens up all sorts of sonic relationships and interconnectivity that I feel jazz can't because harmonic information can be too too intense, too immense. You know, you have to do a lot of work. You know, I start to understand why people reharmonize. I mean, I don't always like when people reharmonize or what they how what they were harmonized to, but Sometimes to get to those kind of interconnect, interconnectedness, you need to reharmonize with a jazz composition, depending on what it is. With the blues, you don't really have to do that. Um, or blues like music or blues forms, and then blues forms inform, inform so much other types of music. So it was also really liberating. And then the final thing, this is a big, this is a big, you asked a big question. The final of the two in terms of the influences was this piece that I discovered um, by a great, one of the great message panels of the 20th century, uh, Kathy Barbarian, um, singing a sequence of a piece by Luciano Berrio called Sequenza Number Three. Um, I talk about this piece a lot. Um, and it, when I heard it, it kind of changed everything. I was really looking for how does one improvise outside of scale? Like if I don't wanna, you know, and I wasn't, it wasn't so much about free music because the forms that Joachim and I were writing were, were chords, it was tonal. Um, but it was more about how do you shift the sonic landscape of, of how you use um, sound and what do you use? And, you know, I, I had no idea. This piece um, is a Foucault piece, first and foremost, but what, what Barrio did, he had a, there's a series of sequences. And the whole point of those pieces is that they sort of push the envelope of the instrument that they're representing you. In particular, the vocal uh, sequenza. Um, I'm not so, I, you know, over the years, I'm not so sure if he pushed the envelope, but what he did, what he composed, is all of these um, sounds that the voice actually makes. You know, laughing, crying, gurgling, sighing, you know, uh, um, uh, coughing, uh, all, all the sort of natural, that was part of this piece and that, that was mind blowing to me. I was like, that's it, that's it, that is it. Use what the voice naturally does anyway um, as improvising material. Wow, that makes so much sense because I yeah. was always wondering where, where, where that leap happened, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, so I was looking for it. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And so after you heard that, then you just started thinking of what you're saying, that the natural sounds that the voice makes in the context of improvisation. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was brilliant because also one of the things, you know, uh, as you know, when you exist within a music, music, musical community, you're kind of you're having conversations, you're talking to people, you're sharing things you, you're busy with or whatever. And one of the things that came up to me a lot, especially in the bands where I was working like more blues oriented material, is this idea of like, nobody wants to hear anybody improvise. That's not, um, no one's interested in that. You know, there was a lot of like uh, naysayers around it. And so I was like, I don't, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe one can consider how you improvise and how you think about improvising. So I had this whole thing where I was really thinking about how can I make improv improvisation accessible? It's like, you know, um, it's like, it's like you know, we have this whole saying in jazz, which I love, like, you do something for you, you give, do something for the audience and you do something for yourself. Maybe you've heard mm -hmm. that saying, right? And for me, that was kind of, because I was like, I really want to improvise and I really want to experiment with these ideas. Yet I can understand from an audience standpoint, this is a little, can be a little strange. So. How, how can I make these ideas accessible? Now the idea, and that's why the hearing that piece was so mind blowing for me because all of the sounds in that piece, every human, every human makes, you know, maybe. Um, and so that to me is a point of, of accessibility, you know? So for example, um, I mean, this is much later, but it's a good, it's amazing, a good example. So I'll bring it up but much later I, when I had started forming the Faye Victor Ensemble which basically was a group to kind of now through composition and experimentation and expansion of form really now really deepen the idea of this practice. 
Um, we did this piece called Gunk, which is basically just a piece on a baseline, a 9A, 9A baseline that is repeated and messed around with. And there's static text, but the piece is about coughing up stuff, like the psychic um, waste in your mind or whatever, right? That's what the piece is about. So for me, just from a sonic space, like using gurgling sounds or coughing up sounds or things like that as part of improvisation, to me makes a lot of sense. And even if it's really out or whatever, I think anyone listening to that can see, you know, see the connection between those sounds and what I'm actually talking about in the piece. That is so funny. And just as an aside, um, it's not an aside actually, but I saw that maybe a couple years ago or, or a year ago, you did a talk with Larry Blumenfeld about how to use music to heal trauma. And this just reminds me of a completely different field that I'm involved in that has to do with somatic work. Mm -hmm. And actually people who go through some kind of like trauma healing will make those sounds or they will cough stuff up, you know? So it's so interesting wow. what you're saying. Um, and, and there's people who, I know some somatic body workers who specifically talk about this stuff. There's gurgling, there's coughing, there's burping, there's, um, you know, noisy breathing, all of this really? stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's so, amazing. That's really amazing. And that's helpful that... Um, so I, I think from what I understand... Um, as a person who is around practitioners like that, but I'm not one myself, except on myself. Um, it has to do with the body entering a parasympathetic state. And basically when the nervous system relaxes, there's a whole bunch of reflexes that happen. And, and trauma in the body usually, um, typically, basically switches off a part of the nervous system. And when that part is activated again, there will be a, a physical reaction, like people will go, <coughs> you know, or something like that. Right, right, right. Okay. And it, yeah. it really happens also in parts of the body that you can't control, such as, for example, the digestive system. Typically, mm -hmm. there'll be a lot of gurgling, you know. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense. What you're doing is the same thing, you know, from a, a musical standpoint, but, but mm -hmm. you're also... Um, literally coughing stuff up, right, in the, <laughs> in the music. Yeah. yeah, well, that particular piece, I mean, it's like a sonic thing that I would do in other pieces, but, you know, it's, I like doing that. I like figuring out, okay, well, um, how can I explore a sonic texture that's going to work for what this piece is, is, is saying, you know? And, um, no, it's cool. How did it go for you when you started... Um, incorporating this what you're saying is you know these sounds that are accessible mm -hmm. because we all make them in in the context of blues well so well for me like the blues became i'll just i'll say that the blues became like a foundation i mean i do bluesy things or blues like things and i even made a duo record back in 2010 called bear which is just called which a duo heck with exposed blues duo um But I would say that blues for me became like more like a compositional framework um, that, you know, can go all, all sorts of places. And sonically, in terms of like, you know, um, the language that developed improvising with those sounds, um, I just started to explore them. And one of the things, the other things that are really great for sounds is words, interestingly enough. It's one of the things I say, you know, I like to share with students or just in general, anybody that wants to be a vocal improviser, the thing that we as vocalists have that musicians don't have, well, and they have it, but they don't really use it or have a fear to use it, is our comfortability with words. And, and a word is a sound. You can break down a word and have a lot of sounds. Um, So that that's really one way I started. Um, and also it just became a really handy vehicle to have a couple of words. Um, so if I ran out of like in the beginning, I kind of ran out of language, which happened a lot, um, to have like a couple of words to kind of get going, even if I just want to, you know, repeat the word or whatever, 
um, whatever I'm doing related to whatever else is going on musically. Um, those are also really great open up sonic ideas. And then just over the years, just um, playing with different sounds, you know, and seeing how they feel in my body and, and then trying them out in performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... Oh, that answers your question. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's amazing. Um, in your last record, the first song is called, is called Ritual. And yes. Can you tell me a little bit, can you just tell me a little bit about that song? Well, so, so I, wonder, I don't know if I'd call it a song, but it's just sort of like a space that, um, First of all, the, with that band, I love that band, uh, Sound Noise Funk. Um, we have a really strong uh, organic connection. And that was a moment um, when it just felt like we all surrendered to the space and to the music. And that's the best way I can describe it. Like I can't, because um, there's nothing cerebral about it. In, in an obvious way. You know, there's nothing like, there's nothing thought out about what that sounds like. <laughs> and how does it, how does it go for you to, um, how does it go for you to enter that space of surrender and just make any sound that comes? Like, do you, how does it feel? And how does it feel getting there? Do you, are you there all the time? Does it happen sometimes? I would say at this point in, in performance, I would say I'm there most of the time. Um, and that, you know, that took a long time to get to. Um, but that's what I love about free improvisation. Um, and, you know, like that piece ritual, that's a free improvisation um, that, you know, sometimes you listen back and like, whoa, okay. Um, so, so there's a lot of, it's trust. It's about, it's essentially a trust of knowing that the people that are involved are going to be responsive to whatever I do and vice versa. Um, I'm going to be responsive to whatever they do and or not, you know, like if it does, if it feels right at that moment to just leave some space. Um, but what I can say with this particular group is just been this amazing, like via osmosis. I mean, we don't talk, I mean, outside of the pieces that are composed, but outside of that, there's not a lot of discussion. You know, I might say, okay, Joe, I'd like you to start this next piece. I mean, it might be something like that. Or Reggie, I'd like you to start maybe just, you know, um, just playing a hi-hat. I don't know, we'll see where it goes. I mean, like, it'll literally be things like that. So, but they are brilliant music. I mean, it's just, they're just great musicians and great improvisers. So it's like themselves with their own history and their own um, connection to, to how, how to connect and, and figure out ways to be in an ensemble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I guess that's what it is. It's, it's about being, being in an ensemble and, 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 and understanding what that means. Um, and not everybody understands that. I have so much to say about this um, because so here's a question. Okay, from my standpoint, discovering codependence has been, um, it's been such a big deal because I realized that, you know, there's things that are not taught in school and I think they are taught maybe in, in, in oral traditions, in community settings, how to move with each other, you know, because if I'm playing with you and I'm concerned about being accepted, I shut down part of myself. And to me, when I hear you and I when I hear that band, there's what you're talking about where it's like, okay, maybe I'll respond, maybe not. But it's coming from the standpoint of here is who I am. And yes. and it's coming from a standpoint of of strength within the self. So there's not that need of like, all right, please validate me. Do you know what I'm saying? Does it make sense? And do you, do you have anything yeah. to say about that musically or just in general? Well, I think, uh, I think I'm not sure if 
playing in this way is a good is a good vehicle for validation because um, I don't think it's, I don't think it really has anything to do with that. I think it's about what what is one contributing to the overall sound um, mm-hmm. of the of the of that moment, um, and it's not about it's not about me. It's not about. Um, I mean, there might be other musical situations where I might want that or seek that, but in this kind of space, this is a space to surrender to the music, and that's what I love about this band. They all we're all on the same page about that. It's not about. Um, it's not about us or me or them. And even on the band leader, and this has been a, a tricky thing to navigate as a band leader because I'm a, a band leader that likes my bandmates to collaborate, to feel like there's a sense of, of like they have some agency in what, what transpires. And I found it can be tricky, but I have found that from a musical standpoint, it's the best because everyone likes to feel useful. And, and if everyone knows that their contribution is really valued, um, you know, beyond just showing up, then you know, I found that 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 can really create great band unity and and connection and all of that. Um, so the trust comes out of the fact that, like, I know they are amazing, and I'm not, you know, not every second. It's like it's always the risk with free improvisation, and this is also why I like having pieces, right? Because that always then you can break that up of having something where you are having a bit more control over how things are going to go, right? I love that combination of, um, but when things are free, it's just free. And there's no, um, yeah, there's no thinking about where it's going to go. You know, Joe Morris has, makes a comment a lot uh, after we play. He's always, he's, he's actually, um, I hope he's on, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he's actually amazed most of the time. He's like, because we just go and, 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 there's no roadmap. And he said, and it's always like this amazing journey. And he, he said, I don't get it. I don't understand. He said, I haven't had this with anybody else. He said, but I think he feels like, you know, because I'm so trusting. And also, I also, you know, I think this is a really good thing to think about too. It's like, it's also as a band leader in that situation, it's up to you to feel, okay, things need something. So this, this, this is where the contribution comes in. What can I contribute now to kind of get the music going in a in a in a in another zone? What you know to give it more momentum or to open up some space? What can I do here for that? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's also this is this is really interesting because what you're saying about everyone is contributing to this space, it it um it makes me think a lot about the lyrics that you're using. Because you know what's gone wrong, what's gone wrong with the world, and then I impeach. Um, <laughs> I also feel like, by the way, that song, what you were saying about language and having like a phrase that comes back, mm-hmm. um, and also, um, also making you know making all kinds of sounds. Um, but what I was gonna say is that there's a song that's called "The Way Forward." In that in that record. And so it, it seems to me a little bit, and I might um, not be correct about this, but it seems to me a little bit that you're thinking, you're envisioning your band as a collective space. And maybe um, you can tell me if that has to do with the way forward in terms of our society. Yeah, so that particular piece um, felt, just for me, had a sense of hope you know, sort of cautious, let's say cautious hope. Um, and I use, uh, I, I can't pronounce the words, but there's a, there's those, that's in Maori, the Maori mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Um, and because to me at that time, I felt like New Zealand was really on the forefront of how to deal with this virus and how to really deal as a community with, of, out of love and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me was a space for, for, for that. Um, and yeah, that's, that, that's really what it, what it was, uh, is about. And in terms of the bands, you know, I feel it's really great to talk to you about this because, um, I think you're bringing up something for me, which I think I'm not so sure was so clear is that, um, because, you know, it, it gets at a lot of like jazz is democracy and how people work together, but this is actually 
this is actually where there's no road, there is no roadmap. This is not like, okay, there is some sort of form, everybody understands the form. Um, this is like no form at all, no nothing. This is just pure trust and, and pure um, reliance on everyone's knowledge of their own history and connection, not connection to this group, which is now four years old, which is not long, long, but their own improvising connections um, for, for their own history and how that comes together here. And, you know, it's a strange instrumentation. There's no bass, which I think is awesome, um, which also means, which is also really cool because that means that we feel sometimes that we have to do something with that space. And then many of we do that in different ways. Mm-hmm. Or not. Can you tell me what happens at the end of I Impeach? Somebody's making all these sounds with, they sound like breath sounds, but they don't sound like saxophone. What is that? Well, it's probably Sam. The Sam uses a lot of toys. He uses a lot of um, implements to kind of alter the sound of his saxophone. And some of them, and I, yeah, and some of them are breathy and dark and, and uh, it's, you know, really, really cool. So that's been a great, element, another sonic element added to the band, you know, because he he doesn't just play the saxophone. I mean, he does. And sometimes it's like, you know, um, not on this record, but our first record, Wet Robots, like we do a piece called I Sing. And he starts out playing more or less, you know, very straight pitched, you know, tones on, on the soprano. So he'll, he'll do that, but then he has this whole other arsenal of sound mm-hmm. that he's bringing in. And what's really cool is that sometimes you don't know if it's the voice or saxophone. Yeah, yeah, I heard that and I was like, but she's singing. So who is making those sounds? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, so this this is going to be a little personal. Um, mm-hmm. So coming back to, um, to, yeah, just the whole trajectory of your music and from Amsterdam to now, Um, and so you, you celebrated 25 years of marriage. Um, and it brings me to that thing of trust that you're talking about in your band. You know, of like, we're just going, there's no roadmap, there's no form, we're just going with a pure sense of trust. Um, tell me if this is too personal. Can you talk to me about, about that sense of trust in your partnership? Um, no, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, So I'll, I'll sort of start up by saying that because we were married 25 years, um, I made a really huge post on Facebook about the history of our relationship. You know, over the years, you know, when, you, when you're together that long, uh, especially in our society where there is such a focus on being a couple, and there's such a focus on if you're not in a couple, all the things, it's a really good moment to talk about this, all the things that Um, gets thrust upon somebody that happens to be in a couple. Um, you know, so over the years I've heard all kinds of things. And and I and I think, you know, I think it's just good to kind of what I wanted to share and, and is that it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to stay, to keep a relationship good. And even if you do the work, there's going to be times when it's just not great. You know, it's just not good or it's rough or whatever. Um, and the thing for us is that we've always agreed to is that we'll always try to work it out before we leave, before we step back. And that's that's just pretty much meant everything because there has been those moments when we like, okay, we really need to work some things out. Um, About the music, though, I will say that, um, and this is also what I mentioned in the post, you know, um, I haven't had parents since I was 19. And when I discovered music, one of the things I was so grateful for was it brought me so much joy. And it just brought, it just brought me back to a space where I was really happy about living and life and figuring out how, how to move forward. And one of the things, um, one of the things that was a big deal to me was not letting any relationship getting in between that. Um, I really saw music as my best friend and I didn't want, I, I really actually never thought I'd get married because I kind of figured that 
probably no one's going to want to deal with that. And that was fine with me. Um, so when I met Yocham and I was very clear, you know, well, we were friends before we got together. And in that friendship and as the friendship developed, it was, you know, he, he was very well aware that the music is first, you know, um, and there's no even, and, and, and he was okay with that. And as we, and, you know, it's one thing to say that I'm okay with that, or I'm, I'm, uh, you know, that, but to actually live that over all these years where he's never, ever complained about um, me taking a gig or, you know, or he's just never gotten in the way with that concern, not, not once, you know, I mean, like he'll miss me and he'll say, I miss you. And, you know, we'll figure out how we can meet up, like if I'm away for a long time, you know, there's been periods when I've been away for like two months and things like that, you know, we'll figure out, you know, maybe he'll come meet me, you know, if financially we can do it or whatever, however, we, we talk it out, but it's never, he's never made me feel guilty, you know, or anything like that. And, um, and it's amazing, but I also feel like I set it up that way. Like he understood from the very, very beginning that this is really um, serious for me. And he's always respected that. Um, so, and I know so many women that, you know, struggle with this. Um, and so I just feel, yeah, and, 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 we, and we've both grown. I mean, we both feel like we've really grown as, as humans and, and as people. And um, he's, he's also a musician in his own right, but he's held down jobs. You know, he's, he's done what he can as can. Also to show that he believes in me beyond just being supportive and like, it's cool that you do this. He's also gone to the beyond and shown like, I actually believe in you and I'm willing to, you know, work full-time jobs in my mind, loving it, um, just to make sure we can, we can, we can, you know, we can have everything we need and that you can do what you need to do. And um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm really grateful. And, and, you know, we do it for each other. I've, you know, because of our connection, he's met so many people and he's, he's come into, you know, his own musical, you know, personhood, um, you know, through that as well. So it's it's been really beautiful to be with someone um where and to see that we both grown and mm -hmm. they were still together. Wow. Yeah, that is a beautiful thing. And I can hear that it takes a lot of work in my own life. It's the same thing. It takes a lot of work. It does. It's not easy to be with someone. Well, yeah. It's just it just does. And I think I mean it's different for everyone, but I think uh, we're both people in these space, so I think that because you know, of course, the pandemic changed that. But you know, the ability to go away for a while sometimes is, in our case, really good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really good. The absence does make the heart grow fond, you know. Um, mm. And um, and it's been good. And, and and there's been times in our relationship when things have been, mm, and then one of I have to usually it's me has to go away, um, and then and that kind of just balances everything out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah it's like that you know that book the prophet he says that in the marriage you have to be like two pillars not the same you know like you're you're apart and you're holding something together and you're together yes. but you're not like stuck together right yeah i was kind of hesitating to bring this up because i don't want to make it about me but just in my experience playing with you i remember we played the song and it's kind of like a complex song that has like a sort of a strange rhythm and you were using i just gave you a phrase i give you the phrase science without conscience is but ruin of the soul yeah yeah i remember that piece you remember that yeah and you were using you were using the word but as like a sort of like this amazing rhythmic pivot where you just kind of kept and it makes it makes so much sense with what you were saying before because science without conscience is kind of like you know it doesn't really have that much percussion to it mm -hmm. and then you were using mm -hmm. but like kind of like a, a a pivot and i really never got to ask you about this because it just kind of seemed like you were doing it naturally, but I know there's like so much practice behind this or so much, mm -hmm. you know, work. And I was just really curious, like, how did it work? 
I think, you know, I, I think because butter is a great word because, you know, it's monosyllabic, strong, that B and the T, you know, makes it, that's what I'm saying. So like, there's so much power. And I think um, it just felt, it just felt right to kind of use it as a, as, as a sort of a rhythmic tool to play with. Um, yeah, because I think that was with the rap, the rapper also. Um, no, that wasn't. That was when we played at. Um, I think I we played. Winter, did we play at Winter Jazz Fest? That's when you. That's when you did that. I remember we played at Winter okay. Jazz Fest. Okay, because I also think I felt we also did it at Roulette. So I'm thinking about that. Okay, that I don't remember as clearly. Um, but yeah, but that way of playing with a but but like but like doing the things like that is um it goes back to like what I was saying earlier about taking a word like a word like what I like to say what word like what um and especially monosyllabic words um because you can mess with them and people still understand what you're saying right if you take a word with a lot of syllables and you distort it people might not know what you're saying anymore um if that matters you know but but when I do that kind of thing, I, I want to be clear of the people hearing the words. But I think it's more just as a way to kind of rhythmically play, uh, to give it more of a rhythmic uh, intensity. Because um, a lot of times when I hear vocalists do that kind of thing, it's a pet, it's a pet peeve of mine. Vocalists don't use enough rhythmic phrasing to me. Uh, you do, you do, you do. Actually, I listened to your latest record a few weeks ago, it's beautiful. I didn't get the chance to. Um, you do, but a lot of vocalists don't. They don't use, um, you know, well, let's say percussive crazy. Let's say mm. maybe make it more, mm-hmm, more, mm-hmm. more specific. Maybe rhythmic, but not necessarily percussive. Um, and just in the midst of other things. I mean, you know, so it's also something I like to play with. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, thinking of the voice as a progressive instrument. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I mean, it can I, be. I hear that a lot in your music, for sure. Yeah, two questions. One, the last question, a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, um, it was also about um, what it's like for you teaching in an academic setting. Right. So um, I'll, I'm happy to answer that because it's a pretty easy answer for me. Um, so far, I get to teach what I do, and no one, um, no one is trying to constrain that in any way. So I'm just gonna knock on wood. <laughs> I get to teach what I do and how I do it, and no one. In fact, I won't even say that no one stopped me. In fact, I think I'm even, to a certain degree, applauded for it because I've been asked. To be, uh, you know, to be involved in curriculum meetings and having a say where a lot of curriculum is concerned, and developing courses and developing uh, thoughts around um, how music should be taught. I get called into this thing, these things, just doing what I do. So, from where I sit, I don't feel limited by it. I actually feel, um, for whatever reason, I feel that. Um, the ideas, this is a really hard thing to articulate, but I guess the best thing, the best thing I think with what I think is fair to say about academia is um, if you can articulate what you do, um, and if I think about the musicians that have made into academia that are not coming from academia, such like Anthony Braxton or George Lewis or uh, Adada Leo Smith and people like that, they have made, gone to great pains to document, and I know this is very male-centric, but this is who I can think of right now, but they have made it a point to document what they do and really articulate well what they do, and I'm able to do the same. Um, you know, I can articulate very, if, if I have a meeting, I can say, just, you know, um, and I think, <laughs> I think, it, people aren't usually ready for that, right? A lot of times I think the idea is if you come from an oral practice or that you don't have a lot of the language to explain why you do what you do. And from an academic standpoint, 
Um, that's a, you know, I can understand that's, that's important because how are you going to teach anyone if you can't talk about what you do? But when you can talk about what you do, uh, and also the other thing I'll say, students really love me. I mean, not to, but the students, um, and, you know, in academia, students have a lot more say now. So there's that. But let's say the students I work with really resonate with what I'm trying to say. And um, and a lot of them have felt have really changed in a great way. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of, you know, what is beautiful about you. I, I love astrology personally, and I feel that you really embody that, you know, Sun and Leo, you're in the center, and it's a good, it's a great place for you where you shine, and the students do love you. <laughs> What can I say? You know? <laughs> um, so to close this, you said that when you were 19, and you you started you discovered um, this music. It gives you a sense of happiness, right? It, well, no, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You said sorry, sorry. You said no, that you haven't okay. had family since you're 19. Yeah, I haven't had. And then it gave you a sense of happiness to be in this music, right? Yes, yes. When I figured that out, but it took a few years. I was in my early 20s when I finally got to this music. So it took a few years, but when I got there, yes, that discovery was incredible. It was really like, okay, really incredible. Okay, was and I'm like glad because of, it kept me kept me going. Like a sense of purpose in the music and in, in what was shared? Well, it kind of, when this go back to the idea of healing, I started to feel good again. I started to feel like, yeah, like, You know, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that point, but I was just starting to it just, yeah, I was kind. I was a nicer person. You know, I was just, I just started to like want to be in the world again. Mm. And that was great. And, you know, and this music, you know, it gave me a place to go every week. And um, I connected, became friends with a lot of the vocalists that were part of the workshop. And, you know, I started studying theory. Actually, here's a really interesting coincidence. The... The workshop was run by Jimmy Siegel, I've mentioned, but also by a gentleman named Jerry Eastman. Actually, it was his space in Williamsburg. And Jerry Eastman is the brother of Julius Eastman. Wow. That is really interesting. Wow. Yes. Was he ever around, Julius Eastman? No, I think, I'm not sure when Julius Eastman died, but I think he had already died or he wasn't in the picture. And I, and it's funny, I didn't know anything about new music or anything, but Jerry did mention his brother, that his brother was in like classical, the classical music world. Um, I don't think they had a lot of contacts, um, but mm. it meant nothing to me because I didn't know who it was. <laughs> it's just that he mentioned that, and I was like, oh, well, I just thought it was kind of cool that he had a brother that was in the mm. classical music world. It was only like the last few years, like, oh my God, that's, that's Jerry's brother. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Small world. Small world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And now you're yeah. in the new music world. And now I'm in the new music <laughs> That's world. That's perfect. <laughs> I know, right? I'm in the new, new music world. Wow. Yeah. New music world is great, though. Like, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's, yeah, it's great. It's, uh, yeah, I'm happy. It's, it's, I mean, I feel like I still do everything, but. This is definitely a new scene for me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, funnily enough, there's a lot, there's a lot I have in common with that scene or a lot. There's a lot of uh, con con connection, I should say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like the Barrio song. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, There is some classical music I, I really like, but I like more experimental approach to those kinds of forms, and mm -hmm. that's what new music is about. But also, new music is now, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of, there's been a push for a lot more inclusion, a lot more um, differing musics. I mean, and now George Lewis is the um, artistic director of the International oh. Contemporary Ensemble. Wow. Yes, which is great. Actually, right before our podcast, I just came off a meeting. I saw I was a little late um, with the International Number and he was he was there. Wow, that is awesome! 
just to close this, like, is there something that you think about might be useful for, for a young person? Just like a second ago, you were giving me some advice. Um, and I'm really grateful, by the way, for, for just for being around you over the years and, and the advice I've received. Um, is there something you, you feel that you want to say? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for saying that, Marie. It's been great getting to know you over the years. And, um, and yeah, thanks for reaching out and asking me to do this. This has been really cool, really fun, and, and great questions. Um, I have a lot more, by the way. I know you have to go, but we can keep going. <laughs> well, not today, but, but these are great, great questions. I think my, my, um, my one thing would be to say is take the time to figure out who you are and experiment with that. I mean, a lot of times I feel like for a lot of younger musicians coming up that, especially if you're in school, like there's this idea that when you leave school that you're kind of reformed artist. I'm not so sure about that, but I would just say, take a lot of time, take the time to explore what you want to say and how you want to say it. Um, and if you're not a vocalist, I would also add feel free to use your voice and just figure out you're living in a time when uh, voices are really important. And if you have something to say, I think it's important to figure out how to say it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's the main thing I want, I want to share. And stay healthy. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you Eat for your being vegetables. here. Okay. Eat your vegetables. Stay healthy. <laughs> stay healthy. That is stay important. Safe. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Faye, for being here. And um, you're welcome, Maria. It's really great to see you. Thanks for asking again. And um, I hope to see you soon. <laughs>